podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to 99.94, the sound of cricket. Download our app for all our podcasts and commentary. Our shows include Red Inca and Double Century, which are hosted by me, plus shows on the West Indies, England, South Africa, Sri Lanka, and India. You can find them all via our social media at 9994DM or by searching in your podcast or YouTube places for the name of your team and 99.94, where we talk cricket. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Hello and welcome. All right, let's get this party started and let's start with some questions. All right, here we are. Aditya says... Do you see in the foreseeable future a larger role for T20 coaches in the live game? That is what uh, uh, that is that they will be able to discuss plans with the captain and change them if needed. Maybe we won't see this as much in international cricket, but do you see a league like the 100 or the BBL trying this for seasons uh, going forward? Yeah. So for those who haven't heard it, I've just done a whole podcast on, on Red Inca uh, with Santoki. Um, and we basically talked about um, the, uh, coaching and how it works all the different parts of it, uh, why it's a bit more confusing in cricket than it is in other places and all those sorts of things. So uh, I'm assuming this question comes on the back of that. I do think that coaches will just have bigger roles as they go ahead only because if you go back to the 80s when Bob Simpson sort of makes it a major international position, um, from then through to now, I think it's only got bigger as a role and, you know, it wasn't that long ago, what, two two decades back, head coach was still kind of a, you know, a position that people laughed about in, within cricket at times, you know, Ian Chappell and Shane Warne and all those sorts of comments. So it will get bigger. Whether we'll ever get to the point where it has as much impact as um, the other sports probably depends on um, whether we allow microphones uh, so that the coaches can talk directly to the captains. Um, so that, that would be quite an interesting one. Um, what else? Um, more timeouts, I suppose. Um, but I think at the moment, you know, certainly at the timeouts, there's no doubt that there's a lot of um, talking um, in that particular way. Um, so I do think it is happening more and more. But you can't you can't argue that other sports don't have a much bigger impact when it comes to uh, coaching than cricket currently does. But that may not always be the way. And you might be right. There might be a league or two who just go, ah, see how it goes. Um, you know, there's lots of great moments in uh, in basketball coverage specifically and i also think like maybe the davis cup uh back in, in uh, uh when that was a major or more, or more of a major thing we you know you could see the coaches and the players talking and uh, and sometimes you get microphones in on the conversations and everything it's also a, i suppose what i'm saying is it was kind of a viral thing before it was a viral thing um so from a social media perspective you know i don't know uh, your young bowler's gone for uh 30 runs in his first two overs and the coach wanders on and chats to him and afterwards they say that you can share the message. That'll pro Those sorts of things will go viral more and more. We, we're already seeing teams do that but afterwards, but imagine doing it in the game and and all that sort of stuff. Um, in the heat, heat of the moment, all, 
you know, those from that end. I really think that uh, that might be the thing that actually pushes it is more, oh, that's, this would be a fun viral thing or, or a fun innovative um, uh, idea. Uh, Will says, could the fact that fast bowls are getting taller be helping Sam Curran due to batters facing less bowls from that sort of low trajectory? So him being shorter is actually an advantage now. No, because anyone who's played professional cricket from the age of 12 to 18 has already faced people Sam Curran's height and, and less. The, the outliers are the tall guys, um, especially tall guys at above 80 miles an hour. Those are the real outliers. And so... Uh, I mean, there's maybe there's like a slight advantage uh, just because they're not facing as many will. But as as a general um, uh, point, you couldn't see how it could make a bigger impact um, than it would than tall bowlers um, would, just because there are so few of them. You know, there's a chance before you're a professional cricketer, you've never faced someone bowling over eighty miles an hour who's over six foot five, right? You might have faced someone over six or five. You probably faced someone over, well, you should have faced someone over six or five and you should have faced someone over 80 miles an hour before you get to the professional level. But the combination of two is probably unlikely unless you happen to be in, you know, facing someone who's on the same career path as you. So another fellow uh, professional on their way up who's already matured a little bit quicker in terms of height and in pace because they also, that's the other thing with those, those bowls. So I think there's a huge advantage to huge men bowling fast. Uh, and I don't think there's as much with Sam Curran. But separate to that, what I would say is in, in any way, if you have a, the, the kind of, what you don't want is a normal, um, what you don't want is a normal delivery style. So if you are, your arm is low, you want to do really low. If your arm is wide, you want to be really wide. If your arm is high, you want to be as high as physically, you know, at, 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 you know, one of the highest in the world. All those sorts of little things help. If Sam Curran has the ability uh, to be, I, I think the average height is maybe 185 centimeters release point. If his is like 150 or 160, I don't know, maybe that is an advantage. I wouldn't think it is though, because I think it feels like to me he keeps quite upright. I, I, I haven't had a look at that. If he managed to then bowl a round arm delivery, because he is shorter and he doesn't have to do it regularly even, but if he has a round arm delivery that he can rely upon, that becomes a bit more interesting for him. Uh, Ian says, um, batting orders are just notional now, aren't they? With Milan coming in at eight yesterday um, or the day before, when yesterday when Ian sent the message, I'm sure. Um, uh, further evidence that number three uh, you want when your opening partnership is broken in the first over is totally different to your number three that you want uh, when you're 10 overs plus. Do you think these scenarios will be where we'll eventually bring in tactical substitutions in T20 cricket? Yeah, potentially. Uh, I'm not even sure if we need substitutions. Oh, I, that, that's, I, I think we might go towards more of an open-ended um, where you can pick your best 15 or 16 players rather than have specific substitutions. Uh, we can never have more than 11 players and obviously more than two batters out in the middle, um, more than one bowler uh, bowling at the same time, all those sorts of things, but, but, but have that more open. So batting orders are more flexible. They're still not as flexible as you think. There's a lot of players out there who really think that their number is their number. And you could see it in their, in their data quite more often than not. Um, they don't like to be moved around. The interesting thing I would say, and I've had this conversation with test coaches um, before and, and test selectors before, the person that you want batting in the seventh over of a test match if you've lost a wicket is also not the person you want in the 60th over. If I've lost a wicket in the seventh over, I really do want another backup opener right, to go in. Uh, if I've lost a wicket in the 60th over and the bowls are already exhausted um, and the openers have both made hundreds, I really want my most attacking, brutal player to go in 
um, and, and whip, up, whip up a quick 70 to completely finish them off um, by the time the second new ball's around. So they're exhausted, they're mentally out of the game and everything else. Um, and sometimes I won't. Sometimes I want the opposite. Sometimes I'll have a wicket in that first over. So I really think that batting order should be um, position context-led. Uh, and they were sort of in the early part of cricket, a lot more than they are now. Uh, and we sort of got into that whole thing that numbers matter. And and they do. On a, if you're always going in, you know, at a, at a certain position, means you're going to be more exposed to this and this and less exposed to this and this. Um, so they do, they do certainly impact you, but there is, there are going to be times when you will have three different players in your team that should all bat at first drop in a particular, um, game, depending on what has happened in that game. And that's T20 and test cricket and club cricket and everything in my, in my view. Renee says, uh, when I say left arm is bold, I always seen a bowl too full or too short. And uh, and the more uh, attacking the stumps. Uh, do left arm seamers bowl fundamentally different way to right arm seamers? Uh, I don't see a Pat Cummins or a McGrath version of left arm seamer. No. Uh, so do they bowl differently? Yes. So a lot of it is technical and it's about your front arm. And I've talked about this a lot with left arm wrist spinners, but it also counts. If you're a left armer and you have bowled between 60 and 70% of your deliveries when you're younger, at right-handers, it means that you have to bowl in a different way physically, which means your front arm is probably not quite as strong. You might collapse a little bit more because you're trying to push the ball over to middle and off stump for the right-hander. And because of that, there is a physical change in the way that you bowl. Second to that, um, left arm seam bowlers generally uh, try and swing the ball in. So they bowl a lot fuller. When you say they bowl straighter, I'm not sure that left arm seam bowlers bowl straighter than right arm seamers do to left-handers, if that makes sense. Um, so I'm, I, I've never seen any data that suggests that. But because so many left arm bowlers, then best ball is the in-swinger or traditionally has been the in-swinger, that means they're probably going to bowl a little bit fuller. It's probably going to look like they're bowling at the stumps a little bit more because even the balls that are going across, if even the balls that could go across might straighten a little bit. Uh, so I think all those things are completely different to right-handers. The short thing I think is it, you can you can work this out with Neil Wagner. It is harder to play a bouncer from a left-arm bowler than it is from a right-arm bowler. And the reason is that I'm going to try and do this in a way that the video people understand it, but hopefully everyone listening uh, on, on the Spotify Live and the podcast also understand. All your trigger movements for fast bowling are trained into you by facing right arm bowlers, right? So if you think about the sway, and this was told to me by Graham Swan about facing Mitchell Johnson. If you talk about the sway when you're trying to sway back as a bowler is bowling to you, that doesn't really work against a left-hander in a way that it does against a right-hander. Uh, and what, what was happening with the England players is they found that they kept getting hit in the arm, the, in, in the left arm, the front arm consistently. And so all the triggers that you have for facing short bowling ha have to change when you're facing a, um, a left arm seam bowler. And if you have a look at Neil Wagner, there's no way Neil Wagner could do what he had done if he was a right arm bowler. And that's because it wouldn't have created the same weird angle and it wouldn't have had that same impact of hitting the batters as much as he did because batters would have got out the way of it, which wouldn't have bothered them as much. And then ergo. So every, almost everyone I've talked to about the Mitchell Johnson spells in 2013, 2014 told me that they were without question um, faster bowlers than they had faced. The problem wasn't the 
just the pace, although he was obviously up there. As, you know, most of them had him as second or third quickest they'd ever faced. It was about the direction of being a left armor, and then also the fact that he was a slightly different left armor because he was coming from a lower angle. Uh, and so all those different things are different to right-handers. Your point about Cummins McGrath, yeah, I mean, we are starting to see super skilled left arm seam bowlers. Uh, it'd be really interesting to see where Shaheen Afridi goes. Obviously, we've already had Wazim Akram. Trent Bolt uh, is a very, very good example of that. Um, but I think if I'm missing anyone else as well. Uh, Zahi Khan was a very skillful left arm um, uh, seamer as well. But generally, we haven't had those kinds of bowlers. The reason you don't get the hit the pitch kind of bowlers um, that I suppose Cummins is a wobble ball bowler, but he's a seam bowler and McGrath was a seam bowler is because they usually try and pitch it up to swing it. So the one bowler I can think of that was, uh, that was a little bit different was Bruce Reed as a left arm bowler. He didn't swing the ball very much, but he was also six foot seven. Um, and so it made sense. It, it wouldn't have made as much sense for him to pitch up looking for swing because his balls would have been floatier. All right. Um, so most tall bowlers, it's very rare to have a tall bowler who can bowl full. And the reason is that once you start to bowl full, when you're tall, it just floats up and people just punch you down the ground over and over again. Um, uh, which is why Kyle Jameson is so interesting. I've gone in many different directions in this um, answer. But, um, um, but yeah, so generally, so that's why he could bowl shorter. But if you have a look at the history, you know, Alan Davidson, um, Wazim Akram, Chaminda um, Vass, we're talking about swing bowlers there. Um, and uh, I would say that that is the majority of the reason they bowl a little bit fuller, but it's also the reason that they then don't become seam bowlers in a way. Um, and it might be it might be why West Indies haven't had as many, um, especially since Sobers, haven't had a left arm, um, you know, constant left arm seam coming through is seam bowling generally helps more in the West Indies than uh, swing bowling seems to. Um, and it certainly got fashionable, maybe is the better way of putting it. And uh, left arm bowlers just don't tend to be seam bowlers in the same way that um, right arm bowlers are. We went down the rabbit hole on that one. That was a good question. I went all in. I went studs up on that question. All right, James um, asks, uh, does the host country's cricket board have any responsibility for ensuring culturally appropriate food is provided to visiting teams? If not, should they? Well, yes, but not in a like, it's a written down thing, but if you're inviting a team to come out and play you, um, you're doing that because you can make money off them, right? That's the un unspoken word. Um, and so if you've got Pakistan coming out and you're giving them um, bacon sandwiches, then they're not going to come back, right? <laughs> it's going to cause huge problems within those two boards that no one would ever want to do. Um, I'm not sure if this is about the Indian um, uh, situation with the sandwiches, from my information, that was actually a BCCI chef. Um, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but that's what I was told um, in that particular case. But there was a reason there was something had been said that, that someone had said they wanted a lighter meal. Obviously, that wasn't passed on to the players. It was probably just to stuff up. Then the, the chef made what they made. Um, but we've certainly had cases of ham sandwiches being made in New Zealand for was the Bangladesh under-19 team at one stage. Um, those things happen a lot. Uh, uh, at the ICC is a little bit different because you have head chefs flown in um, generally from other cricket places and most head chefs of most cricket head chef type people are aware of all the different cultural um, things uh, to them. But that, I mean, the Ishan Sharma story where he didn't think the vegetarian option was good enough 
um, at Brisbane. And to be fair, I would argue that the meat options at Brisbane are quite often not good enough either. <laughs> um, I've had some shitty meals at the Gabba. Um, but when, when he said that, um, they, you know, they did have a chef in um, that they liked, but you're still going to get players who are going to complain and not be particularly happy. Um, but, you know, so you, uh, you know, he went out to get food and that caused a problem. So we have had a few occasions of that happening. Play, I, I mean, I, I eat the food that players have had when I've worked with teams. Some grounds that do really good food um, and there's some grounds where you're just like, I'd just rather go back to the hotel and spend some of my per diem, if we're being honest. Um, and there are grounds that pride, them, pride themselves on it and grounds that don't. But, yeah, the actual ICC events is controlled by the ICC, but quite often it is from chefs around the world. Uh, individually, um, each board um, has someone who probably looks after that directly. Uh, you can uh, you can uh, certainly suggest to the chefs to be making what you want, um, uh, and and some teams do that, some teams don't. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's not really like as far as I'm aware, it's not written anywhere. It's just if you want the team to come back and not to be uh, look shitty in the media, um, you try and make the best food. Or if you're a really dodgy ground, you don't care about that. And there's a few of those out there. No names, Headingley, no names. Uh, Cam says, I really like your points on last week's wagon wheel on October not being a time that Australians watch cricket. Also get the feeling that Australians are just not as into T20 as some other countries, both in terms of spectators and as players as club level. Yeah, I mean, me and Barrett talked about that in one of the Uncovered episodes as well, that it's almost like Australians like the Big Bash, but don't. But like the Big Bash, almost separate to it being a form of T20 cricket. It's a real. I don't even know how to fully explain it. It's one of those points that you hear on podcasts and you get frustrated by. But it does feel as someone who's covered the Big Bash and been out there. Like my dad would say, he doesn't like T20 cricket. He watches like eighty percent of the Big Bash games, right? <laughs> like it's nonsense that he, you know he doesn't like T20 cricket. He's watching all this Big Bash, and I think. I think there is a bit of an element of that in Australia. It doesn't feel that there's certainly a young breed of Australian cricket fan who really, really like T20 cricket, but they seem to be in a massive minority. Whereas in England and in India and in Pakistan, um, I have noticed far more people who seem to really love T20 cricket. And and I do think there is a distinction there. Um, so I do think that is part of it. But I also think that Australia doesn't have and it's not the only country, but Australia doesn't have that culture of um, going to um, non-Australian games. I, I've always said this, that there are many other countries in the world that love cricket more than Australia do. And I'm not just talking about Asian nations. I'm talking about in general. I think there are a lot of countries in the world that like cricket more than Australia does. I think what Australia does is loves Australian cricket. Australian? Australia. Uh, Australian cricket. And... Um, I think because of that, you then have situations where, you know, this doesn't look particularly good. I, this was, I think ICC would have assumed this was going to happen. Um, I don't think anyone's shocked. There's been some decent crowds for some games, some of the Sri Lankan games, um, obviously the Indian games, but also was it the New Zealand? Who did New Zealand play the other night? He, trying to look at his board. New Zealand-England game I thought was a really good crowd. So... Um, but, but yeah, I, I never expected great crowds for this particular tournament. It's if you played it in the heart of January and February, I do think you'd get really good crowds, but, um, playing it at this time of the year, uh, it was always going to struggle and your TT 20 point. I don't think I have any real data to back that up, but it feels right. Passes the sniff test. Let's put it that way. Uh, James says, was the underarm overreacted to? I get that many people thought it was aesthetically unpleasing and anticlimactic. 
but so is icing the clock, flooding, and any other number of uh, retain the lead and shut out the opposition type tactics. Yeah, I think in this particular one, uh, it like if you're icing the clock or if you're flooding or if you're doing any anything else um, of, of of that kind of um, situation, you're still playing the sport. I think the difference was that the thought process in this case was um, New Zealand couldn't even play the sport normally because of what had been done. Uh, you mentioned some other good ones like Mike really putting the keeper on the fence, the last ball of an ODI. Um, so, yes, I think from that perspective, it was probably overreacted to. Uh, Bodyline was probably overreacted to as well. Bodyline's a really good tactic. Um, the problem with Bodyline was the fields were wrong. Uh, if, it, you know, the actual idea of Bodyline, of bowling at the body, has basically been taken up by cricket. It took a long time. Um, but the general principle of it and, you know, the West Indies um, and well, Tomo and, and Lily, then the West Indies, um, Neil Wagner, <laughs> right? All the way through, bodyline was pretty much taken up. It, the, it, there was flaws within the bodyline system. Um, yeah, I, I do think that this whole thing of that's not cricket, you know, um, that, that phrase. So the first time someone said, uh, you know, uh, that's not cricket, where it was sort of publicly recorded and became a big deal was when someone played the forward defence, right? The, the next time that that's not cricket became a really big deal was when people bowled overarm. <laughs> so we're talking about normal parts of the game, the bouncer. Oh, that's not cricket. Um, uh, so I do think that there is a big overreaction. Part of it is the, in the nation by nation uh, basis. Part of it is the Commonwealth aspect. Uh, part of it is the relationships between some of these countries, you know, England doing it to Australia and, Australia doing it to New Zealand. These things matter, right? Um, from a colonial point of view, from a uh, geography point of view, from a history point of view, all those sorts of things. GDP point of view probably as well. So I do think that all of those things uh, play a part in it. But yes, I would say that it was overreacted to. I would say that the ball tampering, the sandpaper gate was overreacted to as well though. Um, Cricket has always – you could say that um, the um, match fixing has always been over overreacted to. Um, so I think I think that those things have always been involved and there is a there is a clutching of pearls that comes with cricket. Uh, me and Abhishek, uh, you know, love to – when a big thing happens in cricket, both of us love to head to Twitter and uh, point out all the different uh, – <laughs> things that have happened beforehand that people don't don't even factor in. So the six ball over was another one, right? So, you know, the hundred change. Oh, how can you not have six ball overs? We didn't always have six ball overs. Are we saying that test cricket in Australia wasn't proper because they played eight ball overs? You know? Um, so not to mention four ball overs as well, just for fun, which probably was stupid, very honest. Uh, so, yeah, I think from that perspective, um, there is a certain clutching of pearls. I think there's a really good podcast I did with Wright Thompson uh, a few years back, when, probably when I started the podcast, and I got him on to talk about cricket. And I can't remember if he said this to me on or off air, but we were talking about the fact that uh, there's an element of cricket of always throwing back to a better time that didn't necessarily always exist when you look back and actually have a look at it. And he, he was talking about the fact that country music was actually – made big by people in the city who no longer lived in the country. They didn't have to get up and use a tractor. They didn't have to get up at dawn and deal with animals that were diseased and um, work all day and um, physical labor. They were musicians <laughs> living in the city, trying to record in Nashville, right? I'm, I'm maybe uh, over, oversimplifying um, some of that, but that, the basic thing is, and cricket's very similar, uh, and, and Wright had written a piece about you know cr cricket when it first started, people said, ah, oh, 
Yeah, and this is in the 1800s when test cricket is becoming big. Oh, no one will ever go to a game that goes for three days. No one has the time. <laughs> um, it's the same argument we have now. And it, you, can, you can go back. Uh, all those things are exactly the same. And yet we look back and go, oh, back in those days, people just had more time. Did they? Did people in the late 1800s have more time to take days off work and go and watch a cricket in England? In Australia, then later in the early 1900s, in India, in Sri Lanka. Well, Sri Lanka is probably different because they were late. Eight, eight. But do you know what I mean? In the West Indies, right? I've got very high on my voice here. But the point is that there is this sort of natural pearl clutching and nothing ever changed. And uh, it was better in the old days thing of and cricket. And I would say that if you look at the majority of cricket reaction, when people are really upset about something, what they are saying is this isn't what it was like when I was between the age of 12 and 18. And music and movies are exactly the same. And as someone who's a fan of all three, it is hilarious to watch all the same groups be really, really annoyed. Uh, oh, you know, rap was better in my day. Was it? Was rap better in, in, in the 80s and 90s? I would say that rap is fundamentally, technically more sound now. I'd say that the different kinds of rap that you can listen to are way better. I'd say that women and other cultures, non-English speaking cultures, have completely taken rap to different levels, not to mention, that, it, and it's kind of the same right across the board, and that's not how we look at it. And I think that that element of cricket comes back into when someone bowls underarm, uh, you know, on the last ball of a game and it ruins it. And it's like, oh, this is the end of the world. Look, cricket's finished now because one player did something a bit dickish, right? And then actually it ends up just being a bit of a punchline for Australian and New Zealand culture. Renee says, thoughts on Safaraz Khan? Uh, Safaraz Khan, sorry. Um, averaging 83 at a rate of 70 in first-class cricket. Yeah, he looks phenomenal. I haven't done a deep dive into his video, but I really want to at one stage and just go back and have a look at how he plays. Um, obviously, we have seen first-class players have very good records in um, over you know a few years in their career. That doesn't mean it's necessarily going to transfer to international cricket. But, I mean, he's fantastic. I think India are just going to unearth more and more players like this as the game opens up. Kennedy says, in terms of how well a country is doing on a macro level, do you think it is mostly down to GDP per capita and how many people in that country participate in cricket or are there other factors that influence? I think there's probably a bunch, Kennedy, if I'm being honest. Number of people playing the game, uh, GDP, um, uh, facilities for cricket specifically, how much cricket knowledge is passed down, um, all those things matter. But, you know, you also look at somewhere like Namibia, which is a German colony next to South Africa, um, who's gone on to be good at cricket, um, uh, don't have many players. So I suppose there are intangibles within that. Uh, I think conditions play a part um, in all those sorts of things. Uh, I think you're probably better to come from a nation that produces pitches that bounce high um, then bounce low if you don't have a lot of cricketers. And by that, I mean it is easier to adjust to the ball bouncing low than it is the ball bouncing high. So there are probably little things within that that are quite interesting. Um, uh, but, yeah, I think the having a proper cricket culture, I wonder if Netherlands and Denmark, part of their problem was not that they weren't producing talented cricketers, but that they didn't have that cricket culture that had been inbred by being colonies of England, um, which meant that, they produced a good cricketer in a vacuum um, and they didn't have the ability across the whole area of, you know, I was taught how to bowl a wrong in when I was 12, right? And, uh, you know, little sh shibboleths of cricket that I was taught really early on that you only get to learn if you come from a really good cricket culture. And I wonder if places like Denmark and um, 
uh, Afghanistan um, and Netherlands, that's one thing that holds them back just in little things. I've, I've told the story before, but 2015 World Cup, the Afghanistani bowlers are being taught to bowl cross seam. That was something that we were taught with the old ball, you know, when I was 13 probably. Um, so I do think there's a big part of that. All right, on to the Spotify, Spotify Live. All right, let's see what we have here. Actually, just before we get to the Spotify Live questions, we'll just have a quick break. Unless you're listening live, and then it would have just gone through. But just in case Nick needs to put some a break in. <laughs> All right, James has got a question. Remember, you can raise your hand and ask questions at any time in the Spotify Live. But James, how can I help you? Oh, he's got the mute on. Oh, is he one of those people that doesn't work? Okay. Uh, James says, how do you rate all the specialist captains this World Cup? Uh, rank their contributions. So by specialist captains, you mean captains who are in the side not to do anything else. Do we have any of those? Um, I don't think we have any bright, really captains. Um, as far as captaincy, I think that this has been a World Cup that is perhaps more to do less with captaincy and maybe has more to do with um, coming in with the right 11 and also realizing that the conditions are going to be completely different to how you probably originally prepared. Um, not to say that there isn't some captaincy on the fly, and we've certainly seen some teams get, you know, Josh Butler probably should have had a stronger word with his bowlers um, at, in Melbourne. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other teams that perhaps um, have had similar sorts of uh, situations like that where you just like, think you're bowling the wrong length uh, or the wrong line on this particular pitch. Uh, but yeah, I can't, I don't, I haven't thought about this as a captaincy uh, led world cup so far. I have thought of it more as a getting the right 11 and then also being, you know, ha having someone like Nagidi and just going, don't bowl soul balls today. Yeah. And it sounds really simple, um, but it really is the sort of thing that uh, it needs to be more than the captain going up to you halfway through your second over and saying that, right? And and so that's not a captaincy thing. I think that's an overall preparation thing. Uh, but there have probably been little things. There's been a couple of small boundaries um, at times, and we've seen certainly some teams handle them better than other teams. So I do think that those things have come up, but I don't think specifically, as far as I'm aware, um, captaincy has played as big a role. It feels like people have talked about it less in this World Cup. Um, maybe that's just because the conditions have, have dictated that. Uh, remember, if you want to ask any questions, just put your hand up in the room um, and, uh, and we can get to them. I've probably got about another 15 minutes or so. Um, so if you do have a question, feel free to raise your hand and ask. Uh, what, what else have I been working on? So you've been working on this big Pakistan piece about, essentially it's about small sample sizes and how in the state of, in the, in the space of three games, uh, over two World Cups, they went from looking like the best team in the World Cup to one of the worst teams in the World Cup. And obviously neither is true. Uh, oh, well, they are one of the best teams in the World Cup, but, but they maybe weren't quite as good as their original five games looked in the last World Cup. And they obviously weren't as bad as they looked in those two embarrassing losses to India and Zimbabwe. Um, so that's something that I've been working on quite a bit. I want to do something on Letton Das as well. Um, and I've still got this idea about fast bowlers that I've been looking at. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of exactly what it is, um, the best way of explaining it. I mean, um, I've got a feeling that we're probably at the time where we have the most, the highest level of consistent pace than we've ever had before. I think Mark Wood and Anrik Norkia's speeds are a very good testament to that. So that's something I've been working on. 
Baska, are you there, man? Hey, hey, Jared. Listen. Hey, what's your question? So, uh, I was thinking about the, like both Mark Chapman and Tim David, right? They actually made the careers in working for Hong Kong and Singapore and then they actually broke into the test-playing nations. So, uh, w- w- would you think that there would be more players in which countries where there's a chance of these players coming? Because we wanted to see that uh, Rolf van der Verwa and other people a lot of these West Indies players think were US and associate and going from a test playing nation to the uh, associate or a smaller nation. But now at least these two players have come through playing uh, uh, for associates, right? So uh, are there any other countries you think host cricket development is strong enough where they can actually produce a uh, maybe a test playing or a uh, play when, when they grow up in a smaller country. Yeah, we've actually had a few players go from associates to major teams. Don't Nanas was another one. Uh, Hayden Walks Jr. Oh, and more. Well, a few Irish players as well. Um, so it, it probably happens more than uh, than we give it credit for. So I mean, Ireland certainly. Not that it will matter now that they are a test playing nation, but Ireland was certainly a team that were producing players like that. Uh, Afghanistan probably produced players that could have played for Pakistan as well. But there was obviously a um, I mean, Rashid Khan certainly lived in Pakistan. I don't know what his legal status was and, and how all those sorts of things work. And I'm not even sure if he knows. I, I did big research on him recently. I'm not even sure if he knows if he was born in Pakistan or in Afghanistan because um, his family went back and forth so often. Um, so, you know, Pakistan would have been pretty handy uh, if they had Rashid Khan in their side. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think it will happen, uh, I think, through the franchise system. Uh, we're seeing with the fair break tournament in the women as well that – it, the problem isn't talent. As I said, part of the problem is the development. So Max O'Dowd's a really interesting one. Max O'Dowd, uh, born in New Zealand. His father is a professional cricketer. He spends about six years of his life um, uh, between the age of six and 12, I think he told me, um, in in the Netherlands. Uh, goes back to New Zealand, develops as a, as a young adult, and then ends up back in, in the Netherlands playing cricket for them. If he doesn't go back and he stays in the Netherlands. He's still got a father who's a cricket coach. There's still cricket in the Netherlands. Do we think Max O'Dowd would be as good of a player now as he was playing on the fringes of New Zealand professional cricket? Don't think he would have been. So for players like that, it is important for them to be in that better system. However, for someone like Rashid Khan, that clearly wasn't a problem. He's, you know, with all due respect to Max O'Dowd, he's not Rashid Khan. He doesn't have that level of talent. And so I do... I've, we've already seen those sorts of situations. We've already seen a few players um, in the West Indies who have mixed backgrounds where they've spent a lot of time in the West Indies and they've spent a lot of time in America who've gone on to be fairly good cricketers as well. So again, uh, we ha- we know that uh, it is possible to do that. As cricket grows in these other countries, though, there's absolutely no reason why that can't happen. I think you're probably more often than not looking at freak skilled players um, but I don't see any reason why there couldn't be a test quality player that came out. I mean, Nepal have probably already had test quality players. They just haven't been developed in the right way as uh, p- cricket in countries like that starts to develop. I mean, Kenya have had test quality players. We know that. So uh, it would be silly to think that that wouldn't happen in the future um, as cricket gets more and more global, as especially as franchise cricket starts to look for those sorts of players um, and develop them. Uh, but there's absolutely no doubt, you know, uh, Paris Kadkar and, and Sandeep Lamachane and um, uh, those sorts of levels of players and, and um, uh, you know, um, Steve Tocolo in Kenya, um, 
if, I mean, if you go, if you listen to the Double Century podcast, you listen to some of the numbers these players are making in their, in their home areas, right? Basil Dolavira, right? In some ways, he played in a country outside of cricket. Yes, there was cricket around him, but he wasn't allowed to develop against the best quality players. And then what makes his debut at 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, whatever age he was, and is still good enough to play test cricket. So we know that when the talent is out there, it, it can overcome all those other hurdles. It's probably more those middle level of players um, that, that they will need to be developed um, and they will need, uh, you know, to be in better systems going forward in order to be the best players that they can. Yeah. So that comes to the point that if you look at, if I look at India, right, they had Patardi and Ranji playing for England at that point of time. So was it that they were just also super talented or they just that they got exposed to English system in the college and then they were able to make the most of it? <laughs> oh, I would say they were super talented. Um, I, I mean, Ranji's story is really interesting. Uh, for those who don't know, he wasn't, he wasn't picked for all English venues because of how racist they were. And they really didn't think he should be playing for England. So think about how talented he must have been naturally in order to break through to play for England at all, right? Um, uh, so his particular situation, I think, is even more. Um, but but there were other players, of course, as well, um, uh, that would go on to play for England after that as well. Um, again, I think they would have had to have been massively talented. Uh, you know, cricket was very... You know, the quality of cricket in, in India was very low in that, you know, until they become a test playing nation, really, and things start to get a little bit more organized. But that doesn't mean that the talent wasn't there, right? Um, the most talented woman's cricketer in the world could be born in Bulgaria and might never pick up a bat, right? I mean, that's the truth of how these things work. Um, and it's, you know, you're starting to see with, uh, I mean, I suppose basketball, but football before it. Um, rugby is another one where as they start to develop these uh, sports in, in, the, in, in other countries, you're starting to see the best players in the world come from very random places. Uh, you know, the, uh, the last two um, uh, MVPs in the NBA are from Greece and from um, Serbia. Um, and one, you know, one is a refugee um, in Greece and the next one um, could be from Europe as well in Luka. Uh, you know, it's a similar thing when you look at, um, you know, Egyptian players in uh, in football, right? Talent isn't the problem. It's getting them into those systems. And I think that cricket is, especially cricket with batting, it's a really hard thing to get good at if you don't come from a culture that sort of helps um, grow you. And, you know, one of the best examples of this, and there are elements of racism involved in, in this as well, but one of the best examples is that South Africa haven't really had problems finding young black bowlers, Right. Because you've got someone who's six foot five, you can give them the ball, show them what to do, and they can bowl really quick. Developing batters is a really tough thing. And you can go back to the way that Sri Lanka develops batters, the way that South Africa develops batters, the way that England develops batters. The players from the better backgrounds with the better facilities when they're younger tend to be batters. And the guys uh, from the coal mines um, tend to be bowlers. I don't think that's an accident. So I do think that the development of talent um, certainly it, it all. I think that all those things um, get wrapped up in 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 what you're asking. Thanks, Sam. No worries, mate. Great question. Uh, well, his question I won't quite read it out because I think he's worded it incorrectly. But I, what he's saying is, was it like for a um, a team that has been colonised to rule cricket? So. You go back and you look at the way that Australia played cricket and the way that England played cricket, there is absolutely no doubt that it was a huge thing on Australia's mind for a long period of time that beating England 
specifically meant something to their national identity, right? Um, and if you go forward, you can see that kind of everywhere, right? It means something in South Africa, it means something in India, it means something in, in all these different countries. And if you really want to know about it, James, the best podcast series I think I've done is on, um, so far, uh, is on the history of the teams who first beat England. Uh, sorry, the, 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 when nations first beat England, you can really see what these wins meant to some of these countries. Some of them not so much, weirdly, but some countries it just meant so much to beat them. And it really is a big deal. I, it's funny, I, I, I put a comment um, in one of my pieces the other day about um, it mean, you know, when Ireland play England at sport, it means something because of the oppression. And an England person got really, oh, we didn't oppress the Irish. It's like, that's not how the Irish felt. <laughs> Right? The vast majority of Irish people did not feel that way. And that history is passed down to you. When I was growing up, it was passed down to me not to trust English people from Irish Australian family members, right? These things are passed on. And so it is a huge deal for any of these countries to beat England. Then in the case of India specifically, but also if you look at um, Pakistan when they became number one in the world, it's huge to then have that level of respect and power and success within the game. And when Pakistan won the World Cup and with Sri Lanka won the World Cup, you see this. It really does mean something else to, to these nations. And uh, so it is a huge thing and it's baked into cricket and we'll be there until one day we move, uh, we move beyond it and we get more teams in and, and all sorts of things. So um, I don't think you can ever underestimate that. Uh, of the way that it's taught. And not everyone in those countries feels that way, right? Especially now where, you know, you have people who are, grow up in India, but maybe they um, move to uh, America to study and they have Pakistani friends and then they end up, you know, living in Kenya or something and working, you know, with a bunch of Sri Lankans and English people. And, you know, the world is much, you know, and or they develop all these friendships just from online and all this. So it is a little bit different now than probably what it, what it has been, but that's that colonizing thing. It, it's still there. And I think you still certainly see that in certain fan bases and uh, even the more mature ones like Australia. Um, I think it's there. I think it's there in South Africa and those are the two oldest cricket fan bases. Right. So it, it certainly rears its head in those situations. Um, and uh, it the, the whole the the whole way that cricket has worked, I think, is very very fa fascinating from that perspective. Um, uh, and Keshav has just said, is India confused with the slot that they switch between Akshar and Huda without utilizing them fully with bat and ball? No, because that's they're doing it. Part of the reason that they're so flexible with that is because they know that that is a position they can be flexible with. So they're trying to get the best matchups available for them, but they're also aware that that may not happen. But in that particular game, they'd rather have the left-hander um, who can bat down the order. Um, and in the other game, uh, they want the off-spinner who can bat slightly higher up the order. That's the way that they're looking at those sorts of things. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, one last question uh, just from James. It says, how do you rate Zampa? Is Agar better? I think Zampa is more impactful and is going to take wickets more but and i i i would prefer i feel more comfortable as an australian fan watching zampa in the team than i do with agar in the team however the last couple of years agar's figures are so good um that it's getting harder and harder i think for australia to continue to pick zampa with agar's batting and with agar's fielding agar is like an athlete who plays cricket he's not particularly 
highly skilled at any one point of it. Whereas Zampa is a cricketer and he's very highly skilled at that one thing he does. And he's tried really hard to get better at batting and he's not ever going to be. Whereas Agar has pulled himself into a low-level bowling all-rounder. You know, I don't think he's ever going to bat number seven in a test match or, or sorry, consistently. He might be able to do it in a pinch. Um, the idea of him ever batting at number seven for Australia, which I know a lot of people, it's not bared out by the numbers. I think he'd be destroyed as a number seven in test match cricket. But as a handy number eight, definitely, especially with Cummins and Stark around it. Um, whereas Zampa is really highly skilled at one particular part of the game. But it does give Australia the ability to spin the ball in both directions, which Agar does not. And I think that that – and also wrist spinners, I think Australia just trust wrist spin more than they do finger spin. And so I think there's a few different parts of that. Um, and I think the fact that Agar didn't really burst in even when Langer was there and Langer, you know, um, had a little bit to do with his uh, development, was a big – huge Agar fan before any of us even knew who he was, um, I think tells you that uh, it, they're probably never going to make that move 100%. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely, I, I do think on numbers, it's getting more and more interesting that, that discussion, but, uh, when in doubt, Australian state leg spinners, is probably the best way of putting it. Anyway, thank you to everyone. Uh, another good chat. Uh, enjoyed it a lot. If you have a chance to come over and see world cup Moodborn, you want to ask, ask more questions, you can ask them on the YouTubes as well. Um, but huge thanks to everyone um, uh, for coming on here for the live today, but everyone who listens to the podcast as well. Lots of great things going on at 99.94. We've got the Australia podcast out now. Obviously, Mitchell Johnson's podcast is out as well. Um, and lots of just cool things that are coming. We're hoping to launch at least one more podcast by the end of the uh, World Cup, although running out of days at this point. Uh, but certainly there's a lot more shows coming um, and they will be uh, happening very, very soon. Uh, but thanks to everyone for asking questions and everything else and support us wherever you can. I'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa, and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. <laughs> <laughs>